It's May 1970, in Dublin, Ireland. This is Government Buildings. A man is walking down a corridor towards the office of the Taoiseach, the leader of the Irish government. He's carrying a note. The note has a few lines on it. Names. Accusations. They are dynamite. The man carrying the note is serious, but inside he must be quietly pleased. He's waited a long time for this moment, because when he gives the note to the Taoiseach, it could bring down the Irish government. That is, if it's true. The Taoiseach takes the note and opens it. It reads, A plot to bring in arms from Germany worth £80,000 has been discovered. The note goes on to say that some of those involved are senior ministers in the Taoiseach's own cabinet, as well as named officers in the country's army. And then at the end it says, in capital letters, See that this scandal is not hushed up. The scandal was not hushed up. Three ministers are out of the government. The announcement came shortly before three o'clock this morning in a statement from the Taoiseach. The next day, the story of senior politicians and army officers trying to import guns into Ireland was all over the papers, at home and abroad. I went into the press room and I was typing away like that and the phone rang and I picked up and said, hello? And this guttural voice came on and said, hello, uh, this is Pravda Moscow here. We hear there has been a coup d'etat in Ireland Oh, gee, no, I said, uh, things are pretty grim here at the moment. I said, all right, but the tanks are not at the gate yet, I said, uh, but uh, it is very, very serious. It was so serious that two government ministers were arrested and one of the most notorious trials in Irish history took place some months later. Why, what type of arms were they? There were pistols. These are the actual recordings of the court case that became known as the arms trial. I was not one bit worried whom he went to once he got the instructions. Oh, no. Do you want to go back on what you conceded? I, I'm not going back on anything. I wanted to get instructions from an official source back in Dublin. By the way, this is a first for Irish broadcasting, to be given permission to air audio from inside an Irish courtroom. Mr. Hawhey would be asked for the final OK. Oh, this is what I assumed that he would ask Mr. Hawhey. And this man you're listening to now, he was one of the central figures in the whole story. Oh, yes, I meant him to go ask Mr. Hawhey. A fine low care from Mr. Hawhey. Yes. His name was Captain James Kelly. A fine low care. I asked for instructions and I said, ask the boss man, which was Mr. Hawhey. He was a 40-year-old officer in the Irish Army who organised for crates of guns and ammunition to be brought into Ireland at the start of what would become known as the Troubles. There were submachine guns, heavy machine guns and ammunition 400 submachine guns and 400 automatic pistols. Body armour. This is exactly the type of weapons and ammunition that are brought in by organised crime and drug gangs. But Captain Kelly was an officer in the Irish Army and he said he wasn't a criminal because according to him, everything he did was on the orders of the Irish government. The minister knew all about it. and He was the relevant minister and that was that. The Irish government disagreed and charged him with a crime. Who was telling the truth? 50 years later, people still can't agree entirely on who did what and who said what to whom. It's just incredible how murky it all was 
and the duplicity and the lies that were involved. Captain Kelly said many of those lies were told about him and he spent most of his life trying to correct the record. And I was accused by all these people of the most heinous crimes of letting down the army, doing all sorts. That went on regularly. And his family carried it with them for all their lives too. I have this memory of being in the school playground and nobody talking to me. And my best friend whispered, the teachers told us not to talk to you. And I I just burst into tears. And though Captain Kelly died in 2003, that family still carry on his fight. Suzanne Kelly. My father almost became a professional campaigner to clear his reputation and sought an apology. I would like something more in the tradition of Bloody Sunday, saying the state did wrong and the state Mm. is now going to correct that wrong. But where exactly did any wrong lie? At the heart of that question is the intensely divisive arms trial of 1970. We'll tell you the story of that trial. And also the incredible events that led up to it. Some well-known moments in Irish history, some bizarre side events, like the involvement of spies and fiction writers. You're listening to episode one of Gunplot, a podcast from RTE Documentary on One on a stunning 16 months in Irish life. This series is complemented by a television documentary airing at the end of this month on RTE One Television. I'm Nicolene Greer, and together with Ronan Kelly, we are picking our way through the stories that led to one of Ireland's biggest ever political scandals. So, who was this man, Captain Kelly? I mean, could you describe your dad for me? You know, as the man who was your dad. Yeah, he was, he was a great dad. This is his daughter, Sylvia. He had an innate understanding of children. And I think that came from the fact that he came from a very large family. He was the eldest of a family of 10. And he'd lost both his parents when he was in his early 20s. He was very loving. He was great at storytelling. He liked to write and he would also tell us little stories. He'd make up stories for us to keep us amused. Um, He liked to sing off key. Well, I mean, he couldn't sing any other way. He was tone deaf, but he would sing off key. And we would think that was very funny. You know, he'd sing at the top of his voice off key. And he was very creative as well. He would sculpt in bog oak. How do you describe bog oak? Well, it's old. I suppose it's thousands of years old. It was buried in the bog for years. It was here long before the time of St. Patrick and uh, way back in the days of the Druids where they were carrying out their rituals in the oak groves, I suppose, of antiquity. You can hear Captain Kelly's Cavan accent there. He grew up in a town called Baileyborough, about half an hour's drive from the Northern Irish border. Captain Kelly was an intelligence officer in the army. Do you think he enjoyed being in the army? I think he did, yeah. I think he wanted, he always wanted to join the army. And I think he did enjoy his time in it, yes. While it might sound quite James Bond, intelligence officer, The reality is that in the Irish army in the 1960s, intelligence officers were mostly desk-based, writing reports on information gleaned elsewhere, like the newspapers. Not very glamorous. He served 21 years in the army. He was editor of Uncustentor, and Uncustentor was the um, army magazine. And my mother used to contribute to that. I actually think she maybe was the first female contributor. And then, of course, he served in the United Nations, you know, as an observer of conflict, and um, we actually have a report from his lieutenant general, a fellow called Odd Bull, which is an unusual name. He was, I think, Norwegian. 
And he wrote a report following my father's time of duty in the Middle East. And he wrote that he performed his duties in an excellent manner. So we have some understanding of how he was viewed within the army when he was in the Middle East. Um, the only other thing I remember is that the one thing he didn't like in the, within the army was shining the buttons of his uniform. He really didn't like getting out the brasso and cleaning his buttons and polishing his belt. And so he used to ask us as children, would we do that? And then he would give us pocket money for doing that. By the late 1960s, Captain Kelly's career was much like other officers of his age and rank, and he was doing well. That was until the summer of 1969. Everything changed when he went on leave. He had a couple of days leave and he decided to go up and see a friend in Belfast with the view to going to see the Apprentice Boys Parade in Derry. And those were the words Captain Kelly wrote in a book he published after the arms crisis, that he was going to see the parade. But going to see the Apprentice Boys Parade in Derry in August 1969 was not like going to see any other parade or festival. The Apprentice Boys Parade in 1969 was to be at the centre of a storm that had been gathering for the previous year or so. For most of the 1960s, Northern Ireland seemed at peace. The IRA was largely inactive and Protestants and Catholics were living side by side uneasily and quietly. But in reality, tensions were growing. The inequality between Catholics and Protestants was being highlighted by civil rights protests. And in the previous year, those peaceful protests had been attacked by police and Protestant groups. Armed Protestants chased the rights walkers as they fled across the fields. They smashed the heads of men and girls alike. The backlash against the civil rights movement was going to culminate in a huge parade of Protestant marchers in Derry in August 1969. The government in Dublin was so fearful for the safety of Catholics in the city that in early August, the Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs had gone to London to plead with the British government to have the march cancelled. The British government refused and on the morning of August the 12th, marches began to pour into Derry. The apprentice boys in town now have been arriving in buses, trains and cars all morning from throughout the north. They number somewhere between 10 and 15 thousand. So this was the showdown that Captain Kelly went to see while on his holidays. He did make an allusion in one of his books to the fact that being an intelligence officer in the Irish Army gave him an interest in the situation in the North. Other than that, he gave the impression that he was merely a tourist. He told a story about going to Derry and that they had decided to stay somewhere. They were staying in some family, somebody's house that night in Derry when they went to see the Apprentice Boys Parade. The Apprentice Boys Parade that Captain Kelly went to see takes place every 12th of August. It's a commemoration of a Protestant victory over Catholic attackers in 1689. 280 years after, the festivities opened literally with a bang at midnight. No surrender! Two loud reports from miniature cannon high on the city's walls echoed over Catholic Bogside, where the slogans on house cables read, Peace for Derry. The day includes a march of Protestant bands parading right around on top of the old city walls. Derry today is a city of pageantry, of bands, of bunting, of fluttering Union Jack. This is from the Lunchtime News on Monday, August the 12th, 1969. 
The old orange tunes fill the narrow hilly streets with thousands of apprentice boys assembled beside the walls for the move-off this morning. And though most of the marchers seem peaceable people out for a day in their own way, there are the minority who underline the tense undertones of this whole affair. The tense undertones of this whole affair are these. The Apprentice Boys March may be a celebration of pomp and pageantry, but it's also a traditional celebration of power. Captain Kelly was going to see a parade that was an annual reminder, as the Catholics saw it, that they were second-class citizens in their city. Derry is a mostly Catholic city, but in 1969 it was controlled by the Protestant minority. They dominated the city government by manipulating the electoral boundaries, and the city government was responsible for municipal housing. And in 1969, the Catholics lived in some of the worst houses in the city, in areas like the Bogside. These people, the Bogsiders, would be central to the reasons why an alleged plot to bring guns into the country began. That's partly because although Derry is a city in Northern Ireland governed by the British, the Irish government felt a sense of responsibility towards many of the people there because they identified themselves as Irish. Eamon McCann was a civil rights leader from the Bogside and when speaking with Nicolene, he recalls that earlier in 1969, one of their marches there had been charged by police. With batons running up Rossville Street to clear the streets of civil rights demonstrators and among them, among them taking part in this, there were civilians. Those civilians were attackers coming from Protestant areas into the Bogside under the protection of the police. A mixed force coming charging up our street, Rossville Street. Now that had a big effect on the way people were thinking in the Bogside. So before the Apprentice Boys March on August the 12th, 1969, the people of the Bogside put up barricades to stop the police coming into their area. The morning of the Apprentice Boys March, Captain Kelly left his friend's house and went down to look at those barricades. He later wrote that he had had very little sleep because he had stayed up all night listening to Derry Catholics complaining about their treatment in a state run by Protestants. Standing in the bogside, he could see the barricades being strengthened and he could hear the music from the marching bands wafting down from the walls above. Who were the people up on the walls above? Well, one of them was a teenager named Gregory Campbell. This was his first Apprentice Boys March. I was 16 and I had just left secondary school and had got employment in uh, the retail sector in the city centre. But the fact that Gregory had a job was something that the civil rights protesters would have said was a privilege. Many young Catholics were refused work in Protestant businesses at that time. But he didn't see himself as living a life of privilege. His family actually lived in a small house with no inside toilet, no hot water and no proper kitchen. Gregory says his living conditions were pretty similar to his Catholic counterparts and he deserved civil rights just like they did. People were marching for certain rights that they didn't have and I didn't have them either. But the anger was that they were blaming me for them not having the rights that I didn't have either. That anger among the Catholics was heightened when the police put up their own barriers. Police had sealed off the Catholic bogside area with a ring of steel barricades. Behind them, groups of Catholic youths 
for gathering, blaming the police, in one man's words, of forming a sectarian barrier in their own city. The battle lines were drawn. Facing the police barriers were the Bogside barricades, where Captain Kelly stood. But on that Monday lunchtime, August the 12th, he had no idea that the events of the next few hours were about to change his life and that he was about to witness, as his daughter Sylvia says, a significant moment in Irish history. And of course, that's when the Battle of the Bogside started. And so he witnessed the Battle of the Bogside. It was extremely exciting for younger people. The first barricades were manned by people of average age, 13, 14. As a teenager, this, while it was violence, it was almost a sense of excitement because you have to remember this was the 60s, mundane life was going on and, you know, whether it was pop music or girls or Boys Brigade or whatever, it was just mundane life that you get everywhere. And then this happens, which is exciting and uncertain and, and adrenaline's flowing and... People don't know what direction it's going in. The direction it was going in became clearer as the bands marched past the entrance to the bogside. About a hundred teenagers from there gathered at the police barriers, chanting and giving two fingers to the bandsmen as they went by. They threw tomatoes and one youth had a catapult and fired ball bearings. Older residents tried to control the younger protesters. As the lunchtime news in Dublin told of rising tension, the Dublin government and the London government were both watching the unfolding events in Derry. Both were watching to see if the government of Northern Ireland could manage the situation in the city. But the events of the next few hours would show that the government of Northern Ireland was not able to manage. could see the march coming along the edge of the bogside through Waterloo Place. Insults were being shouted by the apprentice boys, sort of at young people from the bogside who had gathered. Of course, stones began to fly. Those stones came from the bogside protesters at the police barriers. After four hours of uneasy peace, the cash which had been feared all day came as the marches passed at the city's main shopping area, Waterloo Place. Gregory Campbell was there marching with his fellow apprentice boys. We came through where the initial stones were thrown. The most menacing group was at the mouth of William Street, and suddenly from this group, the first missile, said to be a domestic light bulb, came flying towards the marchers. Then stones began to fly, but most fell short of target and were blocked by the shields of riot police who arranged themselves between ambushers and marchers. The Apprentice Boys Parade ended at half three, but crowds of Protestants remained, staying behind police lines and firing back stones that had been thrown from the bogside. Between half three and four, the hail of stones from the bogside grew. Paterbomb stones, bricks, bottles, the whole works, and, and of course the streets were littered with rubble that had been thrown at the, at the police officer. The police have just made their first baton charge and are inside the bogside. After four, the police baton charged the Catholics and drove them back into the bogside, accompanied by armoured cars and water cannon. For several hours now, police and bogsiders have been engaged in a full-scale battle. 
backed up by heavy armoured vehicles, the police have been making repeated sallies into the Catholic area. There was a force of a thousand police facing the Bogsiders. The stone throwing from the Bogside continued, supplemented by petrol bombs. Clouds of dense black smoke plumed hundreds of feet into the air after the Bogsiders had pushed into the police lines a handcart packed with blazing bedding and paint. As night fell, the residents of the Bogside commandeered a petrol station and set up an assembly line manufacturing petrol bombs. Petrol bombs are being filled by women and children and passed to the actual combatants. Eamon McCann was there behind the barricades on the Bogside. I remember a woman coming down into Rossville Street with a bin lid filled with stones. Now she turned the bin lid round and she went like a tray, like a tray of stones. And I remember that vividly. The bombs, now being turned out with a factory precision, have been raining onto the police lines at the rate of one per minute. Captain Kelly was watching all of this and he saw as the violence turned into a full-scale riot. He watched as Bogsiders slopped petrol from open tins into hundreds of bottles and then hurled them over the barricades at the police. He watched as the police surged forward and retreated in a hail of stones and petrol bombs. He watched as police tried to break through the barricades, only to be met with more petrol bombs, and as a policeman rolled around the ground on fire and in agony. By midnight, 68 police had been injured. Then it was decided to fire tear gas into the bogside, and tear gas had never been used in Britain or Ireland before this. In all, police were to fire 1,100 canisters of tear gas into the bogside. Captain Kelly wrote later what it was like to be there. He said he did his best to stay away from the nauseous, irritating fumes. He saw people making their way to first aid stations showing the effects of the gas. They had, as he said, blotchy faces and streaming eyes. And at eight o'clock the following morning, this is what the people in the South, in the Irish Republic, woke up to on their morning news. I've just come back from the scene of 16 hours of street battling. The acrid fumes of tear gas still fill the air. Of the overnight casualty toll of 312, 100 were police, including one badly burned by a petrol bomb. 200 were treated in the two casualty centres set up by Catholic doctors and the Order of Malta inside the Bogside. Not only were the people down south listening to this, but so also was their government. The cabinet usually met once a week, but during this period, they had nine meetings about what was happening in the north. They were being called on by Catholic politicians to intervene to save their people. The Irish government needed to do something, they just didn't know what. The British government was also under pressure. They had decided to leave everything to the government in the six counties of the north of Ireland. But now it was clear that decision would have to be revisited. We're beginning to get very hard here in the Russell Street area. Back in Derry, Captain Kelly was still in the bogside behind the barricades, in civilian clothes on his holiday, watching what was going on. A woman came up and tapped him on the shoulder. She told him severely that all the men were needed up front. If there are any men, fighting men who are not here, will they please come to this area immediately? He looked around and saw other women looking at him, so he went up to the barricades. This was risky behaviour. 
What would have happened if the British authorities knew that an intelligence officer from the Irish Army was on the barricades in the Battle of the Bogside? A few minutes later, he arrived back with his eyes streaming, with what he described as a badge of honour. Clouds of smoke are still billowing over the rooftops from Bogside, and the acrid smell of tear gas... As you can imagine, there was a constant stream of news going over the border to the Irish Republic. And as the people and their government listened, they could hear that the next stage of the Battle of the Bogside would be more violent. This was obvious to journalists behind police lines. RTE, the Irish public broadcaster, had sent their reporter Tom Cochran to Derry. He recalls that after two days of battle, he saw that the police were exhausted. Absolutely flicked out. They were lying all over, the, up against the walls, and then at the ground, the shields and all the rest. And the worry was, would the tired-out police be replaced by the police reserve, the B-Specials? Next thing was, I saw three members of the B-Specials going past the entrance to William Street. The B-Specials now were like auxiliaries to the IUC, but they had a very bad reputation because they were recruited locally from the Protestant population. And they knew if somebody came along in a car, they knew the person, whether they're Catholic or Protestant, and there was great resentment among them, you know. These people had their 303 rifles over their shoulders, you see, and there was a, a fear that if the B-Specials were deployed, they might start using real ammunition. It was quickly becoming clear to the Irish government that something would have to be done. As we know, the Irish cabinet met several times to discuss what was happening across the border and to decide what they could do about it. Cabinet meetings are confidential, so we don't know what they discussed in detail. But we do know that on Tuesday, August 13th, 1969, they did make one decision. And that decision was to have a huge impact on what was happening north of the border. What they decided was that the Taoiseach, the leader of the Irish government, would address the nation. Okay, uh... This is from the National TV studios on the night of August the 13th. <coughs> the Taoiseach has arrived. The Taoiseach at the time was a man named Jack Lynch. Good evening. It is with deep sadness. Balding, pipe smoking, he looked like a country doctor. He was just two days short of his 52nd birthday. ...have taken place in recent days in Derry and other parts of Northern Ireland. Mm. He was quite keyed up when he got to the studios, so much so that the head of news got him a glass of whiskey to help calm his nerves. You can understand his anxiety. Parts of the north of Ireland were on fire. The Catholics were in a standoff with the police and the police reserve. Stones and petrol bombs against rifles and machine guns. 30 seconds. As the Taoiseach got ready to record his speech, Captain Kelly had already left Derry, the plumes of smoke still rising from buildings behind him. A city that looked in parts like a war zone, and a city that was changed by the previous two days' fighting. As he drove away, Captain Kelly had also been changed by those two days. Even though he had spent two years in war-torn areas of the Middle East as a peacekeeper, he hadn't experienced anything like this before. This was different, he said. Combatants on both sides were fellow Irishmen. He couldn't feel detached and objective here like he could in a foreign country. In Derry, he felt connected to the people. Back in Dublin, the Taoiseach was about to deliver the most important speech of his political career. It is with deep sadness that you, Irishmen and women of goodwill... And it could be 
the most damaging. I've learned of the tragic events which have taken place in recent days in Derry. If he said the wrong thing, something threatening perhaps, it could antagonise the British and aggravate the violence in the north. He needed to make his points, but with care. On Taoiseach's broadcast, VTR number 3064D, recorded on the 13th of August 69 for transmission this evening. Captain Kelly listened to the speech on the car radio. Good evening. It is with deep sadness that you and I... He had at this stage travelled to Belfast with a friend, and when the Taoiseach's speech came on the radio, they pulled over to listen. ...in Derry and elsewhere in the north in recent days. Irishmen in every part of this island have made known their concern at these events. The Taoiseach Jack Lynch went on to talk about the police in the north, the RUC. It is obvious that the RUC is no longer accepted as an impartial police force. He laid out plans to help northerners. We have therefore directed the Irish Army authorities to have field hospitals established in County Donegal, adjacent to Derry, He appealed to the British government to act in the six counties of Northern Ireland. We have also asked the British government to see to it that police attacks on the people of Derry should cease immediately. The Irish government have therefore requested the British government to apply immediately to the United Nations for the urgent dispatch of the peacekeeping force to the six counties of Northern Ireland. But it is this sentence that the speech is remembered for. It is clear also that the Irish government can no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse. The Irish government can no longer stand by. What did that mean? That's the question everyone wanted to know the answer to. What were the Irish government going to do now? And what was Captain Kelly going to do now? That's where we're going in episode two of Gunplot. The Irish government can no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse. This series is still in production, so if you have any insights, documents or tapes you'd like to share with us, please write to documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. Gunplot is written and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer, with production assistance from the Documentary and One team. Sound design is by Damien Chanel. And some of the voices you heard in this episode, which we didn't identify, included Frank Kilfeather, Pat Sweeney, Rodney Rice, Mike Burns, Sean Boyne, Tom Clonan and Harry McGee. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also entitled Gunplot and airing at the end of this month on RTE1. You've been listening to Gunplot, an RTE Documentary on One production. We live in trouble.